Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? Good, Faisal. You? I'm doing okay. We, we've got a great show today. We're going to be covering quite a few things about uh, the brain, the body, yep. politics, the pension plan. We're covering it all today. Yeah, we are. And, and estates and executors and family Potential family problems. There's a ton to. There's a lot to cover today for sure, and we're going to definitely start off with. Let's talking about. Let's start to talk about the uh, the whole cognitive and and physical side of of aging, and this is a big concern. Yeah. When yeah. you talk to the, the you talk to our clients, you talk to people who are approaching or living in retirement. Anecdotally and empirically, there are four major risks that people find when they're going through this retirement phase. Number one, they worry about running out of money. Yep. Number two, they worry about taxes. Number three, they worry about inflation. Number four, and this is not in any particular order, is their health. Yeah. And they're worried about as they age, will their health be able to allow them to do the things that they want to do? Right. So let's get into the topic of, of the health side of things. Okay. And how technology can help us in this too, right? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Dr. Mark Chignall is joining us, founder and president of Centivisor Inc. Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi, uh, David. Glad to be here. Well, listen, I think Faisal did a good uh, setup for us here, and I'm going to let you run with this for, for just a minute. Um, maybe we can just start with, uh, with the, the link between the brain and the body, uh, because I think that's where, where you started with this. And we can talk a little bit about how technology can help connect those two things and, uh, and keep us healthier for longer. But start with, start with this idea of the connection between the two. Yeah, so I'd like to use the analogy of a swimming pool. <clears throat> and the brain and the body are sharing the same pool. It's the uh, circulatory system, the blood. So if you have any metabolic problems in the body, it's going to show up in the brain. So having a fit body is required to have a fit brain. Now, you know what? We, I think, generally speaking, we understand that connection, right? At, 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 an, at an intellectual <laughs> level, we understand that. But it's not easy to do, right? I mean, we get busy, people get out of shape. It's just not easy to connect those things. And I want a little bit of, of your input. I'm sure this was part of you know, the research that you were doing. How do we help people um, take that concept that they understand is so important and put it into practice? Yeah, well, they say that exercise is the best drug, right? And uh, so you have to motivate people because uh, most people don't get enough exercise. This is well known. You need about 150 minutes of aerobic exercise per week at a minimum. And people just aren't getting that. And the older you get, the more you need it. And the, and the harder it is to get into it, right? Well, that, yeah, if you haven't built that as part of your lifestyle. Right. And we hear this time and right. time again. I'm going to spend more time at the gym. I'm going to get healthier, quote unquote. Um, and then nothing happens, right? Like right. We, they just think magically. Like people think magically we're just all of a sudden going to start working out because we got more time. But if it's not part of your... Your lifestyle, your, your, your habit, right? Your routine. Your routine. It's not so easy just to necessarily retire and the next day start a vigorous workout and, program. And this is where technology can help or be your friend. I have a, a Apple Watch. Yep. It reminds me when to stand up. It reminds me that I'm, <laughs> I'm not moving. It tells me that I'm slow. It yep. tells me that I'm eating too much. Well, it, it doesn't tell me that. I just look in the mirror for that one. But there's, but there's a, more and more things from technology that tells me what needs to be done. Uh, Mark, when you look at technology and you look at what's out there and what's happening, what are what are the ways that we could interact and maybe using rewarding technology to help with both both the brain and the body? Yeah, so I think reward is really important. We have this dopamine circuit in our brain, which is all about you know having fun and having reward. And uh, you know if you don't reward people, they don't tend to repeat the action. So so what we try to do is make it into a game, right? So exercise should be a fun game. And uh, you know, the benefits of exercise flow naturally from the enjoyment. I mean, that's, that's the whole principle we're trying to work with. 
Well, and I think there's maybe, there's a, there's a, Centivisor is the company name. And I, I suspect that there was some thought given to that name in, in the mission of what the company is. Maybe you can walk us through this notion of Centivisor and why that name? Yeah, so we want to incentivize activity. And you're quite right, that's a good insight. And so the whole point is to add enjoyment to activity and then you get engagement. So once you have engagement, the person's going to keep doing it. As you said earlier, people have a hard time getting into new habits uh, or even keeping up old habits if they're good ones. So, so Mark, give us an idea of what, how the product and program works to incentivize someone uh, to, to be more active. Yeah, so we have at the moment hand and foot pedals. And in the, the summer, we're going to have this, this new crossover the body action where the left side uh, activates the right and the right side activates the left. And when you start moving, you can watch a video. And we have 300 videos from around the world, these scenic videos. And the video only plays if you're exercising. So we create these kind of virtual tours, and then you have to exercise to, to go through them. And then we have another feature where you can video conference with your family member while you're exercising. Could you imagine you couldn't catch up with all your binge watching on, on, your, on Netflix unless you were working out? <laughs> like it wouldn't work. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I would, that's a it would, yeah, yeah, it would work, you're right. Because when I'm on the treadmill, mm -hmm. yes, I do use the treadmill before you say anything. Um, <laughs> I, the TV's on, it's a show, yeah. so I'm actually paying attention to the show and not paying attention to how slow I'm walking. Mm -hmm. But but that's an, but that's an interesting thing out there now. For Mark, for for Centivize, uh, the, the products that are gonna be coming out, the, the specific physical equipment, why this type of equipment when, you know, the market is quite large in this. So tell us a bit more about that and, and what's, the, what's the rationale or reason why you'd have these sorts of products? Yeah, well, we can we can put sensors on any equipment. We've done it for the Canadian Navy in a project last year, where you take treadmills and ellipticals and so on, and just put in a, a sensor that recognizes the movement, and then you connect it to the video or, or an app or whatever you want to. So the, the basic idea can be done with any equipment. Uh, we're currently doing it with hand and foot pedals because that's easy, and uh, a lot of people do that. But the new kind of uh, crossover device that we have, you know, will be, you know, Canadian-made and... Uh, it will exercise both sides of the body. But, but you know, exercise is great. All exercise is good. Who's the target for this? Who's the individual? Give me a demographic, an age, um, lifestyle that you're targeting with this product. Yeah, so we started out with long-term care homes because in some ways that's the easiest and where the, the demand is recognized the most. But we eventually want to move to uh, aging in place. Uh, where we are now is we're looking at adult day programs, uh, naturally occurring retirement communities. We have like a whole lot of old people in the building aging in place together and uh, retirement homes. Well, that makes sense. And I, I think about my mom's experience in, in her long-term care facility. And there's a number of things in there, right? Number of programs to keep them active and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it goes back to the fact that we talk about this all the time. And, and you and I are in the same boat, right? We, you've got to make this part of your overall Routine. Routine and lifestyle, yeah. right? Uh, because if you don't, we've all felt the effect of not doing it, right? So uh, I think there's going to be more and more options. Um, and Mark, maybe you can speak to this. It's a, it is a big market. It's saturated with lots of different things. What do you think makes the Centivisor approach unique to get, to get the, your target audience moving again if they're not moving right now? 
Yeah, so um, the thing about exercise is that it's often unstructured, right? And you need a trainer or you need to watch a video or something. When you have equipment which is designed to give a certain kind of exercise and motivate it, you know, everything's so much easier. So you're sitting on a chair while you're using our equipment. You know, you're not balancing on a Peloton, which is it's not going to work for a lot of people, especially in a wheelchair. Mark, listen, I want to thank you very much, and we wish you the best with, uh, uh, with the launch and the, and the product development that you're doing. You're on the right track, and I think we can all agree the mind-body connection is key, and we've got to keep that front of mind. Thanks for joining us today. Well, it was a pleasure, and thank you very much. All right, we've been joined by Dr. Mark Chignall, who's a founder and president of Cenovisor Inc. Uh, you know, Faisal, you think about the four buckets that we talk about, and this notion of a legacy bucket. Um, part of that legacy bucket is the, is the efficient transition of assets to the next generation. But you know what? There's key roles that people have to play. And if you don't pick the right people to play those key roles, it can create problems for the family after you're gone. And you want to leave your family in as strong a position you know, uh, when you're gone as when you were alive. And if this isn't done properly, it can create problems. One of the biggest uh, um, outcomes that our people that tell us that when we're doing their estate plan or the legacy bucket, as we call it, is that they don't want to be a burden. Right. They don't want it to be messy. Right. And selecting uh, the people that you are going to select as an executor is important because it, how you set everything up and yeah. who handles it right. will determine the outcome. Right. Right. And so I think that's, that's a conversation we need to have is who do you put there? How do you, how do you get that, that, that person? How do you choose that person? That right? individual, what does it cost? Is there any cost associated with it? Well, it doesn't have to be a specific person. Or could it be a body corporate to handle it if you don't have somebody that you think can do it? There's a whole bunch of options here. Correct. Right? Correct. So let's, let's get right into it. Okay. Jill Chambers is joining us, financial concierge. Jill, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so you heard our, our little setup there. Why don't we start with uh, understanding the options for choosing or selecting an executor? There are basically two options. You can name an individual or you can name a trust company. So an individual will be a family member, a friend. Some people have named their accountant. Some people have named their lawyer. A big challenge, make sure you ask them first. The other option is to name a trust company. So all of the banks have a trust arm, or if it's a credit union, they tend to use Concentra Trust. So those are your, your two options. And there's really, there's pros and cons of, of going both ways. Uh, I work as a professional executor, so I fall under the basket of individual. The difference between what I'm doing as a professional executor versus say a trust company that's a corporate executor, I have a, a personal relationship with the testator. That's the person that's doing the will. So we probably work together to get their documents set up. They know who I am. We have contact annually to review their documents, what's going on in their life. I tend to deal with more sort of general basic situations. People tend to think of the trust company when they, they don't have a family member or a friend to name. And then sometimes they're surprised because the trust companies, they're geared to deal with complex situations. So typically they're expecting the individuals that they act as executive for to have pretty significant assets. When I started looking around, I, I was really quite surprised at, at what the range was for the different trust companies. The minimum is about 500,000 of liquid assets. So that doesn't include your house. 
Um, in Calgary, for most people, their house is their largest asset. So they could be in for a surprise if they name the trust arm of their bank and then comes time for the will to be executed and the trust company says, whoa, you don't meet our minimums. We're not, you know, this doesn't fit our profile. So it's uh, it's an area that people need to do some thinking and, and researching on. Now, now Jill, um, an executor can be compensated for the duties that they provide, even if it's a family member. So for example, I had uh, Dave as an executor of my, my estate in the event I pass, uh, he gets compensated. We've put that in the will. Um, uh, so he, he's aware of, it's not very much. He doesn't, he's, he's cheap labor in my mind, uh, but that's what he's still getting paid. When we look at the corporate executor or we're looking at as an individual uh, like yourself, talk to us about what does it cost and what should people be expecting to pay with the different ranges uh, that are allowed? And are there any rules around how much a, a, a company or an individual can charge? There are, are guidelines, they're not sort of written guidelines, but the courts generally view reasonable compensation at, for the executor as being between 1% and 5% of the estate value. If you're dealing with a family member, then it gets a little bit sticky. If they are also a beneficiary, they may or may not want to claim compensation because that's taxable income. Whereas if there's just a little bit bigger pot to be divided amongst the beneficiaries, they receive that money tax-free. So they're certainly entitled to claim a percentage if they wish, but some of them will choose not to because it just, they didn't want to bump themselves up into another tax bracket. With the trust companies, they seem to have a bit of a floating scale. It probably depends again what your asset level is. Seems to me it ranges between about 4.2 and 4.9, and they'll often have an upfront minimum of $10,000. So that means the estate has to come up with 10,000 just to get the trust company started because it is they are covering a lot of expenses. They tend to deal with more complex situations, so they'll also have an ongoing annual fee that could be about 2% of the estate value. So if you have a large estate, that starts to add up to a pretty significant amount. When the trust companies are involved, often, as I say, it's those sticky situations. And we've heard these horror stories of estates taking you know, years and years and years to settle. So uh, I can understand them charging the fee because they're on the hook for a long time. I wonder if I can just jump in for a second on, uh, on the responsibilities and the duties. So when you... Um, I don't think people necessarily understand well what is going to be required of them when they become an executor. So as a professional executor or as a trust company or something along those lines, tell us a little bit about what um, what major roles and responsibilities that you've got to play. And if somebody chooses to do it themselves, what potential liability there can be? Your biggest liability is messing up what you're doing. And the biggest hassle is typically comes from um, the siblings of the beneficiaries. Uh, the executor, you, you need to pick somebody who is super organized. They better be tenacious. They have to have the daytime hours to meet with the banks. And from my experience, <laughs> sometimes you're going back to the same bank two, three, four times to get things organized. So they have to have a lot of, they have to have that flexibility in work. 
they have to be, have, I think they need to be somebody who really manages their money well, because if they don't pay their taxes on time, what makes you think they're going to be organized enough to, to deal with your affairs? They better be good communicators because they have to keep those beneficiaries apprised of everything they're doing all the time. And it is a lot of people think that when they're executor, all they need to do is arrange for the funeral and apply for probate and then they're good. Well, over time, we've, we have a checklist that we use that's 11 and a half pages long. I should add that how many items there are, but it's, there's a phenomenal amount of stuff that people have to do that they may not think about. And that's what comes back to bite them is if they haven't canceled all the appropriate pensions and that money goes into the estate and they look at thinking about distributing it. Uh, they may not realize that you might have to do three tax returns. And if you, if you do those tax returns, you can't distribute those funds until you have a clearance certificate from CRA. So I guess what I'm saying, even a very basic situation will probably take you 18 months. I have three individuals I'm working with right now, three estates. These individuals all died early February. So I'll need to do the tax returns for 2022. They'll need a tax return done for 20, uh, in 2024 for this year because they earned income for, for four to five weeks. And then there may be another tax return after that. So uh, executives think it's gonna be quick and easy and it's not, it's a long process. It's never quick and easy. It requires a lot of work. You do have to pick your, your, your person or corporate uh, corporation properly. Um, the election is coming up. Uh, pension plan, Alberta pension plan um, has been a discussion point. It was a topic a while ago. It's come up again uh, in regards to the Alberta pension plan. A lot of this people are saying that it's, you know, they're, we're taking a, a page out of the Quebec yep. Uh, program with the with the Quebec pension plan. Is this a viable idea? Is this a is this a hot topic or is it just a sidebar conversation? Right. Is it a political concept or is it a uh, is it an economic concept? It would, it's an interesting thought. We've got Laurie Williams, associate professor, Department of Economics, Justice and Policy Studies at Mount Royal University, joining us again. Welcome back to the show. We always appreciate having you on, Laurie. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's always nice to chat. So let's talk about let's talk about this notion of a pension. Is it a political hot potato uh, or is it is it an actual economic proposal? Well, I, I have to say it doesn't make much economic sense. Uh, so the claim made by, by those who support it is that we've got a younger population in Alberta and we're paying more into it than we're getting out. That ignores completely the fact that it's a larger pool of money uh, that it's being invested. In other words, the risk is, is spread over a much larger, larger population. Uh, it's a well-established fund. Um, it, uh, I think it was in 20... 21, 22, uh, it made about $20 million, I think, um, $20 billion, sorry, dollars, uh, uh, sorry, 20% return, $20 billion larger, 20% return in that time period, and uh, at, at the same time that, that AIMCO was actually losing money. So, you know, just in terms of general risk, I think it, it, it financially makes much more sense to stick with the Canada Pension Plan. Logistically, I think there are lots of problems that could happen. Remember, the Quebec Pension Plan was started at the very same time as the Canada Pension Plan. It's grown and developed and, and, and adapted over a long period of time. Um, other provinces have explored doing this. In fact, Ontario went some distance toward doing this and then backed down. They, they finally decided it just wasn't worth, uh, worth the cost to do this. Uh, so I, I just don't see how it makes um, economic. 
sense. Politically, again, I don't understand what political sense it makes because um, the vast majority of Albertans don't want this. They don't support it. There are a lot of Albertans, as you are probably hearing, who are very concerned about their pension going forward because they aren't confident in the Alberta's government to to um, properly invest it. They're worried, for example, that the, the Alberta government might invest it in oil and gas at a time when oil and, oil and gas is, is returning less on investment than other kinds of investments are. Uh, so again, poll after poll after poll is showing that it isn't uh, politically popular, and uh, and yet Travis Taves in the in recent uh, discussions has raised it again, saying, "Well, we're not doing it now, but we might do it later." And that that I think raises a bigger question about a number of things that the uh, UCP government is toying with, saying, "Well, we're not going to tell you what we're going to do about that until after the election." They've handed it off to panels or pilots or something like that, rather than actually addressing it. So, so Laurie, when we look at if, if the Alberta pension plan discussion is not a hot topic at this point in time because it's kind of been put on the shelf for future consideration. Um, what's what are the hot topics for for voters today as we head towards this election? Uh, the top two are healthcare, healthcare, healthcare by quite a margin in the most recent polls I'm seeing. They're internal polls or ones that haven't been published yet. But I was uh, um, chatting with a pollster on Tuesday night, um, and. Uh, Healthcare is far and away out in front as the, the top issue. Number two is affordability. And uh, those are, are issues that will work better for one party or the other. And I think that partly explains why things are so close. If we're talking about uh, economic matters, conservative governments, generally speaking, tend to um, just sort of on principle be trusted more than other governments on things like healthcare and education, uh, center center left governments tend to be trusted more um, on those issues so there's both the question of uh, which sort of policies which vision uh, albertans think is is more appealing but there's also the question of of who they have confidence in to actually achieve that vision and, and that's that's still being fought and mostly being fought in calgary the area surrounding calgary places like banff Lethbridge, Red Deer, the donut around uh, uh, around uh, Edmonton, those are all votes that are up for grabs. And and it's these issues that are looking like the ones that are going to determine people's votes. Let's let's go to the healthcare topic. What are the key concerns for uh, for the the population and what what would you say is the UCP's position on this and and what's the NDP's position on this? I don't know that we see really substantive differences in terms of what they're proposing. Um, I think the problem for the UCP is that they're taking a health care system that's in, in crisis, um, and they've got to try to show tangible results before the election in order for people to really trust them, I think, before they're, they're willing to vote on, on that particular issue. Given some of the things that have been said by Daniel Smith, given the people that have been appointed to the health care panel, I think there are a lot of questions swirling around um, the positions of, of some of the, well, Preston Manning, for example, and, and Daniel Smith, their positions on some, some health care issues. Um, and we also have the record of the UCP government in mismanaging the health care system, which is a liability, even though it was a previous premier, it's a liability that the UCP government's going to have to overcome. By contrast, the healthcare system was managed relatively well by the Rachel Notley government. And again, there's that tendency to trust the, the uh, um, a center, center-left uh, government more with things like 
like healthcare. So part of the problem is that the the UCP government under Jason Kenney kind of went into battle with healthcare workers, um, wanting them to work overtime, not wanting to increase their their pay, questioning their motives in negotiations. Uh, they they were un, unnecessarily combative in that whole thing. And it wasn't just Jason Kenney, it was Travis Taves, it was Tyler Shandro. Uh, there was a vote of no confidence in Tyler Shandro. He's in Daniel Smith's cabinet. So I think there are lots of questions that people have on the quest on the issue of health care. And if that's the top issue, that may make things more difficult for the UCP in places like Calgary, the donut around Edmonton and, and those smaller urban centers. For the, for the NDP, they're basically saying we're going to stably invest. We've got a plan for making health care better. And, and again, I don't know that the plans being talked about by these two leaders are are so different that people can point to things that would be better in one vision or the other. So it's going to come down to who they have confidence in, who they trust, who's got the stability um, and the and the competence to do this effectively. And and that I think is going to be that whole competence of leaders is going to be sort of under the surface in this election, whether or not it's top of mind. Polling is showing that it's not top of mind. And yet we see those discrepancies in terms of confidence in Rachel Notley and Daniel Smith. Notley's more popular than her party. Uh, Smith is less popular than than her party. So uh, there are a lot of sort of subterranean things, I think, going on in voters' minds as they try to make up uh, their mind as to how to vote. Yeah, Laurie, um, how, do, how would you assess politically the UCP budget that just came out? Well, it's a very interesting budget. I mean, it's huge. It, it's kind of stunning how much money they're spending. And, and so I think that's why we see this Alberta fund um, sort of in the mix and promising to reinvest in in uh, some money in the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, uh, writing legislation to force future governments to balance the budget. But if you look at that, there are lots of exceptions. Um, it's I, I think it's it's meant to reassure people that are more fiscal hawks that that this government takes uh, fiscal responsibility seriously. But it's it's an enormous budget. I mean, they brought in enormous revenues and they're spending all, all but a couple of billion of those revenues uh, on this budget. And it looks like the strategy is, look, we're going to spend lots of money and solve all the problems that we've dealt with up until this point. Uh, they've actually listened to a lot of the criticism that has been brought against them and they're investing in targeted areas where those criticisms are involved. For example, they're saying they're going to hire more judges, more prosecutors. Police aren't going to help at all with the crime problem if you can't actually get to court and process those cases through the courts, and they can't do that right now. So having more judges and prosecutors, good promise, good, good, good strategy. But again, it's going to come down to look. That's a lot of money, and there's a lot of money available to whoever is going to be the next government, and that may still then come down to well, what's going to happen after the election? Which government is going to make the best use of this money? Which government is going to respond to the issues and concerns? Um, that that I personally have. So in a sense, they've undercut the ability of the NDP to say you're not spending as much money or enough money on this, that, or the other issue. Then it's going to come down to how effectively uh, they're planning, how successful they are in actually accomplishing their objectives. Lori, we have to leave it there. We always appreciate your insights and the input. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure as always. Take care. Uh, you know, Faisal, it's let's talk a little bit about the the markets and the kind of the wrap up for the week. Um, we came off a difficult. Uh, February, mm -hmm. uh, it was really the market action in February was driven by a repricing of, of expectations of where central banks are going to take interest rates, predominantly the U.S. Fed, right, and the uncertainty around that. The higher, how high are they going to go, and how long are they going to keep them 
uh, at, you know, higher uh, than what we had anticipated. And that created a bunch of, um, of volatility. And, and that's where the debate will continue. A, are we going into a recession? Mm -hmm. B, how long will this inflation rate be above the target rate of the central banks? Um, and then C, how long will these interest rates stay at these levels and are they going to go down? The debate's out there. Mm -hmm. um, we were initially hearing that by mid-year 2023, they'll start to taper, or sorry, start to cut rates. Yep. Then they got pushed to second half yep. of 2023. Yep. My view, next year, if they need to. Right. If they need to. Right. And so this is a, a balancing act. Everybody's concerned about the, the Federal Reserve's um, credibility. Right. Uh, can they actually believe what they say? Um, no matter what, if you follow what the, the Fed is doing, it will tell you exactly where things are headed. Now it's a matter of pricing the assets around that situation. Mm -hmm. And that's where the debate is still going on. Yeah, and there's going to be uncertainty around that debate because uh, it, it's data dependent. And, and the data is unlikely to be consistent every month. So if you're looking for inflation data to fall every single month, you're not going to get it. We're going to get different data that says different things, right? Sure. So it's a choppy process, naturally. And I, I think people are going to have to brace themselves for what comes as a result of whatever the data says that day. It's like a yo-yo diet. Yeah. Sometimes it feels good and sometimes it doesn't feel good. And yeah. when it doesn't feel good because your weight's gone up on that, on that diet, the, the, the feeling of or lack of motivation to continue comes up. And that's a selling in the market. So it's very... Yeah very similar to a yo-yo diet. And I think when we look at that, we got to have strategy for a little bit longer term. Uh, we were talking, you and I were talking about this, uh, I believe it was Thursday, we sat down and talked about the portfolio and, and, and how, how it's structured. Uh, I, I, you know, there's two sides to this. There's your, your one side, which is your fixed income and alternative side to kind of lower volatility. There's opportunities for growth. And there's just kind of hugging what the market is doing in the middle. Uh, and, and that approach um, is what many of institutional money managers and pension plans are doing at this sure. point in time. And so the strategy that you have to think about going forward right now, uh, as of this point, is how do you want your portfolio positioned? Are you prepared to take the large swings as we get th through this? Or do you want to kind of minimize that volatility while they get through this? The solution is in between those two scenarios, some are looking at cash, and you're going to see more and more articles about just buying GICs because they're at four or five percent, right? Or buy, going into high interest savings account because you're getting four percent, and we haven't had that for 15 years, right? Um, the debate's out, and I think that's a, there's a lot of a consideration to be done to be had. Yeah, well, and and you know what it does is it brings into play other tools. If you you mentioned GICs, there's other tools that people have at their disposal now that they didn't have a year ago or two or three or four years ago, right? Because of where interests are and so on and so forth. So that's cool. The more tools we have, the better it is. You just have to obviously align whatever your investment thesis, strategy, and goals and objectives are yep. to make it work over time. But you said something interesting I want to jump on as well. If, if, if people accept that this debate about how high, how far, how long interest rates are going to be wherever they're going to be, and the data won't necessarily be consistent every month, and it's going to create some choppiness. You've got to manage not just your expectation of return. You have to manage your expectation of risk. And so when you talk about, you know, barbelling a conservative piece with a piece that's designed to take advantage of opportunity, 
and you've got this middle piece that kind of hugs the market. What we're talking about there is trying to manage both of those sides, right? Mm -hmm. You're, we talk about this concept of R plus R equals result. It's risk plus return equals result. Say that one more time for the, for the people to understand what the equation is, what plus what equals re results or yeah, return. Yeah, so we call the R plus R equals results. The return plus the risk of the portfolio equals the result that you get. Here's and the challenge <clears throat> I think every investor should be asking either their advisor or if they're do-it-yourself, calculating the risk level out there. That's the one thing is ask how much risk or volatility should I expect given the portfolio I have in front of me? And that's a good gut check because when markets are going up, everybody has risk, a high risk tolerance. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, excellent. When yeah. markets go down, everybody starts to reassess their risk tolerance right. all of a sudden. Yeah. And it becomes market dependent, right. not, not objective dependent. Right. Okay. And so no matter what happens, because you don't know if this market's taken off next month or it's going to crater next month. We don't know those answers or somewhere in between. So understand what's the volatility, the risk metric yep. to that equation. Yep. And then you can say, given the rate of return we're expecting is, and that risk, is it worth that result right. uh, that I want? Is it not? And I think that's, that's a key piece. So when, when we look at what's happening out there, you're seeing companies being, um, uh, you know, they, they do well on, on one earnings call and their stock goes up 13%, um, or they, they miss and their stock goes down 13%. Um, we have to remember that the economy is not the stock market, right. and the stock market's not the economy. Right. The stock market is a forward-looking metric of the economy. Right. They're not the same thing. And nor is a company the stock market. Right, an individual company, an individual bond is not the bond market. Correct. And so there's lots of layers there that, that people have to work through, right? And so we, we tend to use these terms as generalized, gross generalizations, right? And we've talked about the rules of thumb. You gotta be careful about that stuff. Um, yeah, okay, so R plus R equals the result, risk plus return equals the result. And that's what we talk about around structure and discipline as well, right? You've, you've gotta make sure that you work backwards from your goal and objective and you use the proper rigor, structure, and discipline to make sure that you can manage uh, all of those different objectives. Dave, we've got a couple of minutes before we have to uh, end the show. Um, three tips for our listeners on how they can assess the risk of their portfolio. What do they need to do? Well, the first one is the gut check, right? I think that's the simplest one. Um, I think that there was a lot of that going on last year. Um, what do you mean by gut check? Well, can you sleep at night? Can you sleep at night? So I would suggest to add to that, put a dollar amount. Well, How let's get to that. Okay. that because that's, so I'm starting with the feeling. Because okay. you and I both know that, um, that it, it's emotional, right? When, yep. when you go through down markets, you, we talk about risk as a... Um, as, as a measurement, and there are measurements for it, but it's how people feel it. And so that's, that's the first thing. Can you sleep at night? And if not, I think you need to have a conversation. But remember, when you're having a conversation and you can't sleep at night, you may have to de-risk the portfolio. You can't maintain the same return expectation if you're going to adjust your risk profile. And people lose that, that fact, yeah. right? Understand the downside on dollars. So you've got gut check, Check on the dollars on the downside. What's your third tip? Well, it's it's um, financial planning. So it goes back to work out the long the long term plan. So work backwards from your goals and objectives, and do a proper plan. Put the work in 
to know how much risk and return you need to take in order to achieve that long-term plan. And then you've got a basis to come back to when you have up markets to say, am I taking too much risk? And you have down markets, am I taking too much risk? Am I getting enough return? It takes, I'm just gonna say all the stress, that's not true. It takes a lot of the pressure off. And if you wanna take a lot of pressure off, uh, you wanna attend our upcoming seminar on how to protect and grow in your portfolio through every market condition to ensure your retirement will never run out of money. We're gonna do that on Tuesday, March 21st, 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel. You need to register at morethanmoneyradio.com to, to join us. Thanks for taking uh, the time to join us for another edition on More Than Money on QR Calgary. On behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, we look forward to talking to you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada. Canada.